As we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 16, this is probably one of the chapters in the Bible that is most overlooked. Um, Simply because when you start to read it, you run into all these names. Most of them are unfamiliar. Most of them you can't pronounce. So it's kind of like, what's this? And you look back at the end of chapter 15, and he says, May the God of peace be with you all, in verse 33, amen. So I guess he was done. So chapter 16, I don't know what this is, but it just looks like a bunch of list of names, like the credits, you know. And most people just turn the page and go to the next book. Well, there's a lot of rich stuff here in, in Romans 16. It really continues in the theme that we've been studying. This is our, our, our fifth message, I believe, on Paul's heart, on the character of Paul's heart. And we've, we've looked at Paul's unifying heart in verses 7 to 13 of chapter 15. We've looked at Paul's satisfied heart in verse 14. We've looked at Paul, Paul's bold heart in verses 15 to 16. And then also his glorifying heart in verses 17 to 19. And then verses 19 to 21, his missionary heart, as well as his planning heart, Last week in verses 22 to 33 there uh, toward the end of 30, 29. And then Paul's praying heart in verses 30 to 33. Now, the, we're not done with Paul's heart. <laughs> because it's kind of like he took a breath at verse 14 and then he kind of closed out that chapter. And he comes right back to revealing his heart to us in what we have before us in chapter 16. So your assignment for next week is to read chapter 16. Read chapter 16 and get familiar with it, and and we'll delve into that next week. But it's a very important chapter in the Bible, and a lot of people don't understand that, but it, it starts off listing all these names. There's 33 names listed here in all, also two unnamed women and a bunch of other people who are unnamed men. Uh, but there's 33 named people. 24 of these individuals in chapter 16 are located in Rome. Now remember, we're in Romans, so he's writing to the believers at Rome. Uh, nine of the individuals are actually located in Corinth. And so that gives you a little idea of what you're going to find when you go through that chapter. It continues to re- reveal the heart of Paul. Last week, we closed with Paul's praying heart. And up to this point in Romans, Paul has continued to unwrap and teach us some very deep, doctrinal, rich truths that can enable us, if we apply them to our lives, enable us and equip us for the work of the ministry. That's the purpose here. Paul isn't just sharing all this information, all the doctoral information on the righteousness and justification, all the things that we've learned over the past four and a half years. He's not sharing that with us just so that we can say, uh, more. <laughs> He's sharing that with us so that we can be equipped to go do something. And I think a majority of Christians today, unfortunately, are not understanding properly their position in Christ. And when you don't understand who you are in Christ, it affects what you do in Christ. And there's a lot of believers that are saved, that God has paid for their sin. They've come to Christ. And yet, they haven't connected the dots to realize that, wait a minute, is this all it is? We just come to church on Sunday? 
Did God just save me to be a spectator? That's not why he saved you. The reason he saved us is so that we could serve the body of Christ so that the world, the unbelieving world, would look at the church and say, wow, look at how they love each other. Look at how they serve each other. What a testimony of God's grace in our lives. But Paul has spent most of the time in Romans dealing with all this theology up until about chapter 15. And there's kind of a a theory going around the church today that if you're interested in theology, then you're not interested in people. You know, a theologian is somebody who's disconnected. They can't relate to people, so they just sit in their office and study their theology books. That's all they do. And unfortunately, there are some pastors like that, to be frank. The only time you see them is on a Sunday in the ball pit. The rest of the time, they're cloistered away just, you know, with their theology books. Well, I don't think God has called us as ministers or as Christians even to use that as a cop-out to just, you know, spend time with our theology and not be concerned with people. And what this chapter 16 unveils about, reveals to us about Paul's heart is that, you know what, even though he was a theologian, theologian, would you believe that? I mean, Paul was a wonderful theologian. He is deeply interested in people. There was no disconnect. Uh, some theologians say, well, I just don't relate. I can't relate to, to people. Well, that's not an excuse. I mean, all of us, most of us, some of us, I guess I should say some of us, would rather be alone than with other people. I'm one of those kind of people. I'd rather be in a room by myself than a room full of ten people or two people or one person. Just my personality. It stretches me to be around people. And I'm sure it stretches them (laughs) to have me around them. I mean, it goes both ways, right? Um, And so, you know, just because your personality has those certain, you know, idiosyncrasies to it, it doesn't give you the excuse not to talk to people, not to reach out to people. No one could be more interested in the great doctrinal truths of God than Paul. I mean, that's what we've been studying. He's unfolded them for us over the past four and a half years as we've gone through this book. But here in chapter 16, we also see that Paul's not just interested in theology. He's interested in people. Paul can be said to show more interest in people than anyone else in the Bible except Jesus. If you stop and look at this chapter and read it this next week, he names person after person after person. So before we jump into the text this morning, and I'm doing this just because we have limited time, but as I was rereading chapter 15 this past week, I realized that in my haste to try to finish chapter 15, I may have skipped over some verses that I didn't fully explain. And someone asked me a question this last week, and I said, you know what? You're right. I didn't cover that. So I, I, I didn't cover it sufficiently, I didn't feel. And as I began to study and look at verses 25 to 28, I realized that, whoa, there's another segment of Paul's heart here that I totally missed. You know, we left off with Paul's praying heart in verse 30 to 33. But if you go back to verse 25, let me just read of chapter 15, 25, 
to 28. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And I thought, this, this really speaks of Paul's giving heart, that he was willing to do this. He didn't have to do this. You know, when it comes to charitable giving, and people who give charitably, most people assume they are generous. But most people are not naturally generous. Generous. We just aren't. By nature, we are what? Selfish. <laughs> we don't want to just give everything away. That's not how we just respond. It's part of what it means to be a sinner. That's, we're just selfish. We're concerned with our own agenda, our own needs, the needs of our family. And, you know, if we have some leftover, we'll throw a couple things in the pot as it passes by. And so I really believe we need to be taught to be generous. It doesn't just happen naturally. Now, I think some people are gifted in this area, and by nature, they're just naturally generous. But it doesn't come without some instruction. It doesn't come without some prompting by God. And so what Paul, I think, is sharing with us here in verses 25 to 26, he's really revealing his giving heart, his giving heart. Paul taught those who were Christians, those who came to Christ, to be generous. That's what he taught them. And most pastors, I think most churches, don't like to speak of giving. You know, we don't berate you with requests for giving every week. We're not constantly saying, oh, you don't got to give more. You know, pass the bucket again. That's not enough. We don't do that here. We believe that's between you and the Lord. And I think sometimes as a result of that, we swing the pendulum to the other, the other side of the issue, and we don't ever, ever bring it up. And so this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time on verses 25 to 28. Because he writes to the believers in Rome, and he explains why he's being delayed. Uh, he delayed his plans to come to them because he's on his way to Spain. He refers to what he had done to teach the Christians in the eastern half of this empire about giving. And so in doing so, he, I think, reveals to us some important aspects on giving. Now, how did Paul view this offering that he had here? He was bringing an offering to the saints at Jerusalem, those who were poor, it says. And it was from the Gentiles. And so it really gave a good picture of the unity of the body of Christ, that here you had Jewish believers suffering because if you became a Christian as a Jew, basically you were ousted of your family. If you had a business, it was done. You were basically out on the street if you became a follower of Christ. And so 
because of their pride as Jewish people, you know, it was kind of a contention here that all of a sudden these Gentiles rallied together, took up an offering, and they were going to give it to these poor Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so Paul had to kind of make a point about this in verses 25 to 26. I think in verse 25, as you read verse 25, you see it here. He says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. How did Paul view this offering? First of all, he viewed it in the service or in aid to the saints. It was going to help somebody. The word that's translated here, service or aid, is really from a similar word we get the word deacon from. It means servant. It occurs just a few verses down in chapter 16 when we read about Phoebe and she's commended as a servant or deaconess in the church. And so we have in our society people who are unable to care for themselves, people who are poor legitimately. They're not just working a scam on the corner. They're legitimately distraught. And what Paul is saying is, you know what, it's a function of these deacons or these servants to meet these people's needs through offerings. We have what we call a deacon's fund. In the deacon's fund is a certain amount of money. Someone within our body, first of all, comes upon hard times. They can come to the elders and say, hey, you know, uh, I just lost my job whatever, I can't pay my rent, whatever it might be, having a hard time. And that money is there to give as a gift to a legitimate need. And we don't do it lightly. We don't just say, yeah, sure, here. (laughs) You know, we want to make sure that we're being good stewards of the monies that have been entrusted. But that's really the role, not of an elder, we're a small church, so, but it's the role of deacons. That's really what Who should be doing that? Um, But we're all called, not just deacons, we're all called to show compassion. We're all called to serve one another. Um, It's a necessary spiritual fruit, you might say. And that's kind of what he says in verse... um, uh, Where's that... 28 there, I think, he, he, he talks about the idea of this being a, a spiritual fruit. That, that, that means that if the life of Christ is really found in us, then we're going to care for others. He says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by week. In other words, this is something that will, and I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. In James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says this. Suppose, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily, or daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not a, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. See, one reason we're called to be generous in our Christian lives is because generosity is evidence that we are what? That we are believers. That we don't believe what we have is ours. That we know 
that because we've come to Christ, everything we have is his. And so it's a little easier not to hold on to things as tightly as if you had the mindset, no, this is mine. See, if you don't care for other people, or you don't care for the work of God as we've seen in the video, I mean, how could you not be moved by that? I mean, these faithful people whom we've had a blessing to support over many years gave up 30-plus years of their life to go to some place no one else would go. And now you're looking at a tribe who's mostly believers. They have the Word of God in their own, in their own language. And that's not even enough. They're continuing to minister to them. They're putting, now they're putting the Word of God in the audio. What a great idea. You know, it'd be easy to walk away from that and go, man, 30-plus years in the jungle, I'm done. (laughs) They're Christian, they got the Bible, God bless them. But see, when God puts a burden on your heart to care for other people, you can't help but care for other people. Just this last week, we had somebody left some carts, homeless carts over here by the nursery, and so I was trying to figure out who they were. Couldn't find anybody, and finally drove around the block, and I saw a lady sitting on the front Steps of the church, walked up to her and said, hey, by the chance, are those your carts up there? Oh, yeah. I said, well, you know, um, what's going on? Well, we're, we're trying to get to San Francisco. I said, well, where'd you come from? San Francisco. I said, okay. You know, and I'm looking at one older lady and two carts. So I'm thinking there's no way she could have pushed these two carts all the way from San Francisco. I don't know what's going on. But so I said, well, do you need anything or well, no, I, you know, trying to get bus fare. And I said, well, um, you know what? I, I can't have you parking your stuff here, but I'm more than happy to help you out with some bus fare money. Oh, that'd be great. Okay, so I pulled out some money, gave it to her. I usually don't give cash to people like that because you don't know what they're going to do with it, but she seemed pretty nice and pretty legit. And I thought, okay, I'm trying to be gracious. So she started walking. I started walking her back up to her carts. And I'm still trying to think how she's going to push both of these carts. And about, we got back here. All of a sudden, this gentleman came walking with two big bags. Of, I don't know what he had in the bags, but from Rite Aid. And I said, ah, now it makes sense. That must be, they must be together. <laughs> so I said, hey, is this your friend coming? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay. I said, uh, well, I'll let him know. You know, you, you can't just camp out here. But uh, hopefully the, the money gets you to where you're going. So he came up and I said, hey, how you doing? And oh, fine. Is there a problem? I said, oh, there's not a problem. I said, we just, you know, we can't have, have you parking this stuff here. And, and um, you know, uh, I gave her some bus money. She said, you needed some bus money. So I tried to help her out and uh, gave her some funds for that. Well, I didn't ask you for any money. Attitude right away. And I'm like, oh, great. I mean, she was real nice, you know, but this guy just had an attitude for some reason. And I said, I didn't ask, I didn't say that. I just said I gave you some bus fare money because she said, she indicated you needed some money to get back to San Francisco. So she said, he said, well, I didn't ask for the money, and I'm sure she didn't ask either. And I said, you're right, she didn't ask. I said, I offered. But, you know, I wanted to say if it's a problem, give me back the money. But I didn't say that. I was gracious. And I said, well, I said, you know, I, I said, we, we, we just can't have you hanging out here because, you know, sometimes we have kids here, whatever. It's just not a good situation. So hopefully the money gets you back to San Francisco. We walked up and we got their carts and, and uh, 
And he goes, well, why can't we just stay here? I go, well, it's private property. You can't camp out here. You, know, you just can't. I said, the police check it out once in a while. And he's like, well, that doesn't seem right. You know, this isn't private property. It's a church. I said, well, no, it's private property. And, you know, I'm trying to dial down, being nice to this guy. And he was just being very antagonistic. And he's pushing his cart out there. And he got outside the little gate there. And he goes like this. Like this, right? And then he continues to walk away. He goes, stupid pastor doesn't even know what that means. And I said, yeah, I do, <laughs> by the way. And I said, I hope you have a nice trip back to San Francisco. You know, I mean, I could have just walked up to him saying, get off the property. It's private property. But I was trying to be compassionate, trying to be gracious. That's what God calls us to do. But just because you do that, it doesn't mean they're going to wrap, wrap their arms around and say, oh, God bless you. <laughs> Sometimes your graciousness and your gifts uh, fall on hardened hearts beyond measure. And, and even though you're, you're courteous and you're nice and you're trying to help them, they don't see it that way. And so, but that doesn't mean we don't do that. And so we have to realize that this is, he says there, in the aid to the saints. So, I, you know, the reason I, I share that is because it's a very real thing. We've all come across homeless people, and sometimes we get jaded. <laughs> I'm not giving them any money. But sometimes, out of the goodness of our heart, God moves us to do just that. And if they go buy whatever, that's on them. It's not on me. So we have to be careful with that. Secondly here, in verse 26, he points out the Gentiles were pleased to help out. So he says, this is going to be aid to the saints in Jerusalem. And he says, for Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He's pointing out that the Gentiles are willing to help out. Were they really pleased to do this? Were they, did they really want to do this? Did they really want to give their hard-earned resources to these poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem? And I think the answer is yes. Um, there was places where Paul couldn't get an offering for people like this. One place was Corinthian in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse Verses 16 to 18, it talks about this. He had a problem. The Corinthian church made a commitment to help people out, and then they were, they were kind of backpedaling, saying, uh, it's just, you know, we don't want to do it. And so Paul had to kind of play hardball with them and say, no, you made this commitment. You need to continue in this. And he points out that, you know what, if you're truly believers, this will be the right thing to do. Because he understands that as Christians, we must be taught to give. But generosity is a natural part of being Christian. Because we know that so much has been given to us. And even though people dislike being instructed about giving, we all do. We don't want to hear a giving sermon Sometimes God wants us to hear just that. And so here you had these Gentiles who were pleased to help out. And then thirdly, quickly, the Gentiles who had shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, Paul points out in verse 27, they actually owed it to the Jews to share with their material blessings. 
What does this mean? He's basically saying, you know what? Because the the Gentiles were reached as a result of the Jews, right? They they reaped that spiritual blessing of coming to know Christ because of of the Jews who had been entrusted with the word of God and, and became Christians themselves and then shared that with them. And originally, there was kind of some contention there. Well, can a a Gentile really become a Christian, or do they have to become a Jew first before they become a Christian? And that's why Paul writes, no, in the body of Christ, there's what? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one. There's no male nor female. We're all the body of Christ. And so he points out there that because they shared in the spiritual blessings of the Jews, being that they were saved, Now, they really owe it to them to become part of a a material blessing to them. You know, I I mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you just turn over there quickly, and then we'll we'll close out here in a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And look at the first five verses here. Because this really gives us the it's kind of a a formula for great giving. Uh, The secret of great giving, you might call it. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see the formula there? He says, first of all, the formula for generous giving is, first of all, being tested severely with afflictions. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to us. Secondly, he says, an abundance of joy. And then thirdly, extreme poverty. We don't think that way. The world doesn't think that way. As a matter of fact, if you hire a, a fundraising organization to help you raise large sums of money, you'll be told, first of all, the first third of the goal must be raised by advance gifts from large donors. That's what they tell you. The second third, by nearly as large of gifts from very wealthy people. And then the last third from your organization's regular constituency. That's how the world thinks. But that's not how it works within the church. Sometimes the gifts from large donors are, 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 are supposed to be at least 80% of the whole. That's what they tell us. But that's not how it is in Christian circles. A lot of times large gifts have their place. I mean, we're not going to turn away a large gift, right? But... By and large, the work of the church is sustained by regular people with small faithful gifts. People who are not by any idea wealthy. And we're we're really blessed, beloved, to be part of a church who, over the years, as we look around at our facilities and continue to fix things up, that this, this... organization is debt-free. We don't owe a penny to anyone. What a blessing that is. I mean, I can't imagine 
trying to manage a church and then having the, the overwhelming burden of having this debt hang over your head. I mean, we know how it affects us personally. Can you imagine a corporation dealing with things like that? But he points out there simply those three things are key to making a generous giver, a severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, and extreme poverty. And you say, well, what's the difference between the Christian model and the secular model? Well, what makes the difference simply is this. First of all, the people involved have to be willing to give themselves to the Lord. If you want to become generous in your life, you're not going to understand generosity until you come to Christ. That's bottom line. He has to transform your own thoughts on this issue. You have to be willing to to come to him, repent of your sin, and turn to the Savior. And when you do that, what does he do? He saves you. He transforms you. He makes you into a brand new person. And what a glorious thing that is. And so the difference between a secular giver and a Christian giver would be, first of all, they've given themselves to the Lord. And then secondly, they have given themselves to others. (laughs) And that takes us back to Romans and really showing us Paul's heart here. Why was he willing to spend all this time talking about these different people? Because he was interested in them. He loved them. He cared for them. He wasn't willing just to say, yeah, okay, here's the, here's the offering, see you later, whatever. But he sincerely was concerned for their welfare. See, to be a Christian is to surrender oneself to Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's what he says in the New Testament. He says, if you want to become my follower, then what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what he says. And so many times... Somehow that gets left out because we're so pressed on closing the deal. We want people to know, well, if you come to Jesus, he'll forgive your sins. Is that true? Yes. He'll put his spirit within you. Yeah, that's true too. He'll make you a brand new person. Sure, that's true. He'll give you power to live an abundant life. Sure, that's true. But it's also true that you're going to have to deny yourself every day, that you're going to have to take up a cross, an instrument of death. You're going to have to turn away from your sin, believe on him, and begin to follow him as your only and one master. You're not listening to a bunch of voices on what to do. You're listening to one, his. I remember in college when I was in ROTC. That's as far as I made it in the military. But I was in ROTC, and the Lord took me a different way. But I remember standing there with these other guys and you know we would be planning and strategizing whatever trying to figure out how to get over this hill or climb up this wall or whatever you're supposed to do sometimes they gave us a compass and said here go find these things it was kind of fun actually but i remember as a team we'd be together and there was one guy on our team that actually was a little older than all of us he had already been to military school so he had had a lot of experience with this. And I remember when we were out there trying to figure out what to do, everybody would be talking. But nobody was really listening. And finally this guy would say, you know, I think we need to do this. And everybody would just, oh, okay. <laughs> and they would listen. And he was right. 
Okay, he knew a lot more about all that stuff than we could ever even dream of because he's already been through all the training in his junior high and high school years. And so he had this vision of going in the military, and I'm sure he, he did really well. But I just remember everybody chatting, and then as soon as he began to speak, wow, okay, this is our leader. We've got to follow him. That's how it is in Christ. When you come to Christ, all the voices in the world, all the voices of everybody else who's kind of chiming in on, on whatever it is, should be drowned out by the voice of Christ. And we should only be concerned with what does he want from us. See, Jesus calls us to a life of discipleship. We heard that a couple weeks ago when Dr. Heald was here. What does that mean? It means serving him as our Lord and Savior our entire lives. It doesn't mean you get a break. It doesn't mean you get to retire from being a Christian. See, Christians must persevere in the calling to the very end. That's what the Bible says. Once I was reading a book, and in the book it said that it was giving a, I was on leadership, and it was giving an illustration of this board meeting that was happening. And the board, the head of the board said, you know what? If you're going to be a good board member of this company, you should be able to give one of three things. Time, talent, or treasure, you choose. Sounds like good advice, right? That's worldly wisdom. That's what the world tells us. The Christian has a whole different level of expectation. What Christ says is, no, I don't want your, your talent, your treasure, or your time. I want all of it. <laughs> I want you. Completely, entirely. See, that's what it means to come to Christ. That's what it means to follow Christ. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you'll want to give him, give yourself to him, and as well as your treasure, not only to him, but to others as well. Why? Because he gave himself for you. That's what we celebrated this morning. We need to be taught to do this, though. It doesn't come naturally. So what's your assignment this week? Read chapter 16, and next week we'll begin to look at Paul's loving heart. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you've given us examples in the Bible that we can live by, the principles that we can apply to our lives. And Lord, we know that even here in the small little church, it doesn't just function on autopilot. It functions because people are willing to sacrifice and to give of their time, their treasure, their talents. But Lord, as believers, we're required to give all that to you anyway. So we thank you for your instruction this morning. We pray that we would continue to be, as we already are, a generous people here in this church. And Father, we think of the different missionaries that we support around the world and the kids that we support in India even the retired missionaries who are no longer even on the field, but we continue to support them financially. Lord, that's just a testimony of our our love and our commitment to you. And we pray that as individuals, people around us, whether it be at work or in our neighborhood, would see that we are people with generous hearts. Because in the end, Lord, this is all yours anyway. We just kind of get to move it around a little bit. And so, Lord, we pray 
that you would continue to bless us. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that you would just call them to yourself as only you can. Lord, cause them to, to understand that there is a God in heaven who's holy. And here we are on earth as sinful men, and, and there's no way that we will ever be able to stand in his presence as unholy beings. And so we need to have our sin forgiven. And it was for that reason that Christ came and died and was buried and rose the third day victorious over sin and death so that we could, by putting our faith and trust in him and living for him each and every day, have our sins forgiven, be restored, be reconciled in our relationship with you. And Lord, that you would implant within us the very Holy Spirit to live this life that you've called us to do. Father, we pray that you would bless our day and our week. We look forward uh, to serving you this week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.